Does it feel like God's in the house this morning? Yeah, pretty cool. My experience, man struggles with two things, and man or women, doesn't matter, and I've heard these issues throughout the course of my life. Actually, three particular things, but we'll get to the third thing in a minute. First one is, why am I here? What's the purpose to my life? Why do I exist? And when I ask myself that question, the next logical question is, where is history headed? Is there a culmination to this? Or am I just caught up in a succession of sunrises and sunsets? Is this going someplace? Mark Twain cited a great quote. I haven't heard it in years. Somebody reminded me of it this morning. The two greatest moments in your life are, one, the day that you were born, and two, the day that you discover why you were born. We're going to explore Acts chapter 13 this morning to help you understand the culmination to history, why we are here, why God placed us on this earth. This is a classic passage of the who, what, why, when, and where questions. Every Bible teacher, and maybe you do this in your own devotions, when you sit down throughout the course of the week and you look at a passage of Scripture, you can always ask yourself those questions. It applies to every single passage. Who is it written to? Why is it being written? Where are they at in this setting? What's the context? Why is it being written? The who, what, where, when, and why applies to everything. Let's pick up where we left off last week as we answer those questions. Remember we left Paul and Barnabas floating on the Mediterranean Sea? Maybe you were here last Sunday and we saw that they set out to sea from the island of Cyprus. They had a 200-mile journey across open water. And we left them there because it was going to take a long time to get to where they were going. Let's go to chapter 13 and verse 13. If you don't have a Bible, you find them in the racks there around you, or you'll see these passages up on the screen. It says this, Now Paul and his companions put out to sea from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. But John left them and returned to Jerusalem. There's a little map that's going to go up on the screen that might help you. Maybe you have maps in your own Bible that would assist you the same way. It's titled under Paul's first missionary journey. But if you look down at the very, very bottom, you'll see the island of Cyprus in the middle of the Mediterranean Ocean, the Mediterranean Sea. And in the midst of Cyprus is the capital city, Paphos. That's what's being mentioned here in verse 13. They left the capital city, Paphos. They're sailing north up to Perga which is a really, really big city in the Roman Empire. But they're not going to stay at the city of Perga. They're about to go on an adventure. And Mark, John Mark, who's mentioned here, John, knows that's where they're headed. And for whatever reason we don't know, he decides to bail. He leaves and goes all the way back to Jerusalem. Whatever the reason is, is so egregious that Paul doesn't want him on the team anymore. By the time you come to Acts chapter 15, he says, no, you can't come back. Now, eventually they make up and they become friends again. John is very young at this stage, though. He's in his 20s. Eventually, he becomes the author of the book of Mark. John Mark wrote Mark, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So at this point, though, he's just an understudy, and he leaves. Now, have you seen that map? You see where they're going? Let's go to the next verse, verse 14. But going on from Perga, they arrive at Pisidian Antioch. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. Now, Luke's note there in verse 14 is extremely concise. Matter of fact, you might even use the word terse because he doesn't give us much detail that this is a grueling journey. They've already gone 200 miles across open ocean. Now they're going to go another 100 miles to the north to this city of Antioch, not the same Antioch that we looked at last week. 
different Antioch. There were 16 Antiochs in the New Testament. And this one happens to be called Pisidian Antioch to differentiate it from the one we looked at last week. That particular Antioch, Pisidian Antioch, lies 3,500 feet above sea level. And to get there, you've got to go through some really mountainous terrain called the Taurus Mountains. Now, if you've ever seen any of the Hobbit movies, you understand what it means to have individuals go along the cliff face. These are cliff sheer rock faces to get to Pisidian Antioch. And below them are large gorges filled with rushing water. So these guys are literally hanging onto the side of cliffs with turbulent water underneath them. And when they do find open passes, it's filled with bandits and robbers. I think that's why Paul wrote what he did in First or Second Corinthians 11. You'll see this on the screen. He says, I have been on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, dangers from robbers. Probably part of what he's thinking about there. Now when the difficult journey is over, you understand a little bit more of the setting. He arrives in Antioch, and it's the Sabbath day. And they're going to sit down because synagogue is in process. Now, we discovered last week that it's the custom of Paul and Barnabas. Every time they go into a new city in the New Testament, you find them first going to the synagogue, sharing the gospel of Jesus, and then going out into the city and begin talking to the people of the city. This situation is no different. A synagogue is very, very unique because it's not just a building for the purpose of worship. When you would go to a synagogue in the first century, you would find that it was also a hall of justice but it was a dating site. It was where young men went, went to meet young women. It was a library. It was a civic hall, a place where people could go to connect. So picture a Starbucks attached to a library, attached to a hall of justice, attached to a church. Then you've got the picture in mind. That's the setting that they find themselves going into. And if you want to make contact with a community, a synagogue is a great place to start. Now let's move forward into verse 15. It says this, after the reading of the law and the prophets, the synagogue officials sent to them, saying, Brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say it. I need a volunteer this morning. I need somebody to read a passage of Scripture for me. Somebody willing to do that? Just two verses. Lydia's pointing at her brother. I don't see any hands going up. So, Preston, how about you read Deuteronomy for us? Okay, it's not going to be on the screen, so you actually got to pull up a Bible and read it, Okay. Deuteronomy chapter 6, it's in the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, okay, he'll get to it. Okay, he's going to look up Deuteronomy chapter 6, and here's why he's going to do that. I want you to get a sense for the feeling for what Paul and Barnabas experienced every time they went into a synagogue. Every Jew who went in on Sabbath day to a synagogue experienced the exact same thing. So, Preston, what I'm going to ask you to read are verses 4 and 5, okay? And real loud, so hear what you need to do. You need to stand up, okay? That's why this is a volunteer role, okay? <laughs> Turn around and, and read to everybody really, really loud, okay? I know he loves this. Oh, no, louder than that. Read it, read it like the rabbi would have read it. Okay, excellent, Rabbi. Thank you. Okay. okay, those are the first two verses to the Jewish Shema. Every synagogue started out the exact same way. The Shema was declared, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And they went on all the way to verse 9. 
declaring who they were before God. The very next thing they do would, would enter into what they called the 18 benedictions, which was a long prayer. After that, there was a reading from the Torah, the books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, one of those passages. After the reading of the law, there would be a reading from the prophets, Jeremiah, Elijah, Isaiah, something associated with a prophet. And then part four, they would identify someone within the auditorium who was worthy to speak to the entire assembly, preferably a prominent rabbi. Well, they got Paul there, the student of Gamaliel, Pharisee of Pharisees, probably the most learned man of the Old Testament on planet earth at that time. And he's in their synagogue. So the synagogue official says to him, if you've got a word of exhortation, now's your time to speak. What has the Holy Spirit just done, church? The Holy Spirit has just opened a door. Clear opportunity, auditorium full of people who are religiously minded. They're already thinking God things, but they have no relationship with Jesus Christ. They're interested in God, but they don't know Jesus. So the synagogue official has just asked the Billy Graham of his era, would you like to talk about God in the Bible? Okay, how do you think Paul responded to that? He's all over it. He jumps up to the plate and does exactly what you would expect him to do. Because he is an expert in the Old Testament, he's about to take us on a speed tour through the history of the Jewish people. And he moves very, very quickly. It's distinct in that way. So let's follow along as we come up to this next verse, verse 16. I want you to hear this. He's going to do the history of the Jews for a reason, though. He does it to show God's faithfulness to God's promises. God never lies, right, church? God never lies. He never changes. His word is always the same. And so Paul's about to show that because God's word never changes, he's faithful to his promises, and the promises are leading to something. There's a culmination. Let's go to verse 16. Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with an uplifted arm, he led them out from it. For a period of about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. Now, verse 16 says, you who fear God, meaning there's not just Jews there. There's Gentiles, people just like you and I, who've come into this worship center to encounter God. And he begins addressing a topic that's near and dear to your heart today in 2015 and near and dear to their heart in the first century. He begins talking about God's care, God's providential care. So he says in verse 17, God chose our fathers and he made them great. Meaning he's making it really clear. God's been at work throughout history. He's been acting through the days of ancient times all the way till the present now. Go forward with me to the next verse. Verse 19. When he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land as an inheritance, all of which took about 450 years. Note to yourself this morning, your God works on a long-term scale. He does. It may seem like you want him to intervene immediately, but God lays long-term plans, and Paul's emphasizing that there. Took 450 years. Your God works his plans on a long-term scale. 400 years they were slaves in Egypt, thinking, when is this going to end? 40 years wandering in the wilderness, 10 more years after they crossed the Jordan River, and then God begins to divide up the land as an inheritance. 
Paul's emphasis in this is that for this reason, through the entire period, God has shown his power and his mercy and his loving kindness. If you let your eyes just drift up to those previous verses 16 through 18, you see some verbs there. God chose the patriarchs. He made the people great. He led them out. He put up with their conduct. He has distributed the land, meaning God's got a plan. So our God has just been emphasized here by Paul by his character. And his character and his nature is that he leads his people even when it seems like he's not. Move forward with me into verse 20. After these things, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Verse 21, then they asked for a king and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. After he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, concerning whom he also testified and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do all my will. So when they're oppressed, God gives them judges. When they ask for a king, God meets their request. Ultimately, he raises up David to be their king. Now, when you see that phrase in the very last part of the verse you see on the screen, when which God calls David a man after his own heart, it might cause you to pause. Maybe throughout your life, if you grew up in church, you've struggled with that verse. How can God call David a man after his own heart? Even if you didn't grow up in church, you've probably heard about King David. And you know that he was an adulterer. And he was a murderer. How can he be a man after God's own heart? I know men especially struggle with this thought, so I want you to hear me on this. David is called a man after God's own heart, even though he's guilty of murder and adultery, because a man after God's own heart is not a perfect man. A man after God's own heart is an individual who sees his sin and recognizes it for what it is and deals with it and repents of his sin. So David is called a man after God's own heart because of verse 22. Because God says, he's a guy who's discovered my will. He knows that my will precedes his will. So verse 22 ends with, he will do all my will. See, David became a man after God's own heart because he's an individual who recognized he's got to chase after the will of God. Not because he's perfect. None of us are perfect, right? We're not there. So David's king of Israel. He's leading the nation. He's chosen by God. And God reveals to him a special promise. A promise that he made to David that he made to no one else, but he made for everyone else. It's found in 2 Samuel chapter 7. I'm going to come back to that in just a few minutes. But David got a special promise. And it is this particular promise that Paul is driving towards. He wants this presentation to help everyone in the auditorium understand there is a reason why I'm driving to this point. So he's proclaiming these truths. He's speaking all of the Old Testament history to get to God's strategy, showing that God has a nature, and his nature is to rescue. Now here's what I want you to notice. Very cleverly, he's making a transition from the Old Testament ancient things into modern day, into the present, in his case, in the first century. So now he's no longer going to be talking about ancient history. He's immediately jumping into the present day. But what he's done is he's laid the superstructure for the Christian faith. He's laid the groundwork to help everybody understand, same God. Move forward with me, verse 23. 
from the descendants of this man, meaning David, according to what, church? According to what? Promise. According to promise, Paul really likes that word, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus. Now, any Old Testament student living at that period of time knew, especially those sitting in the synagogue that morning, they understood that the Messiah was supposed to come from the line of David. King David had lived a thousand years previously, but eventually there would be a Messiah. Every Old Testament student knew that, but they also knew this. They also knew that eventually a prophet would come on the scene who would announce the arrival of the Messiah. Here's an example of that. It comes from the Old Testament, Malachi 3.1. Behold, I'm going to send my messenger. God's saying there's one that's going to be coming, and he's going to clear the way before me. That prophecy was fulfilled in John the Baptist. John the Baptist was the messenger. Jesus, the Messiah. So Paul's driving towards a point here. Go with me to verse 24. After John had proclaimed before his coming a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel, and while John was completing his course, he kept saying, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he, but behold, one is coming after me, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Now, in the first century, John was incredibly revered, perhaps even more so than Jesus. People knew of him widely. Among the Gentiles and the Jews, he was really exalted as this guy who's a powerful prophet. So very likely the people that Paul's speaking to in this particular setting knew more about John than they do about Jesus. So intelligently, Paul has placed John as the center pin, saying everything in the Old Testament was leading up to the culmination of this moment in history. And John gets to be the link pin, which is pointing forward to what God's going to be doing in the New Testament. John speaking of the Old Testament while fulfilling what God said he was going to do in the New Testament. So he asked this question, what do you suppose that I am? I am not he. Those are the words that are taken right out of John's mouth. Luke chapter 3 verse 15. Look at John's actual words. I am not that one. No, but he is coming after me whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. See, John knew who Jesus was. And he identified that he wasn't even worthy of the lowest of the lowest of the lowest jobs on planet earth. The poorest of the poorest slave sat at the door of their master's house after their master had walked the streets, feet covered in goo and dust. The responsibility of the door slave was to untie the laces of his master's shoes and wash his feet. John says, I can't even go there. I'm not worthy of that. So we understand we've gone over some remarkable history at this point. Paul has been emphasizing, here's God's promises, here's God's faithfulness. Here's God's promises, here's God's faithfulness. Here's God's promises, here's God's faithfulness. He's doing it for a purpose, to get to the point where it applies to us. Because this message that he's about to share is for you this morning as much as it was for those in the first century. Go with me to the next verse, verse 26. Brethren... Sons of Abraham's family, and those among you who fear God, to us the message of this salvation has been sent. Do you notice what he did? He transferred from the third person to the second person. He's no longer talking about they, he's now talking about you. He says, To us the message has been sent. So pause, he's pausing to acknowledging he's got two groups. 
Got the sons of Abraham present in the synagogue that morning. He's got those who fear God, the Gentiles, meaning everyone is hearing this message, meaning what he's about to share is available to everyone, not just to some special people. Go with me to the next verse, verse 27. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, recognizing neither him nor the utterances of the prophets which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled these by condemning him. It's kind of a complicated verse, but let me explain what's happening here. Paul is brilliantly anticipating a hard question. And the hard question would sound like this. Yeah, if Jesus is the Messiah, if he's the one who's been promised that was going to come, why'd they kill him? Why didn't they recognize who he is? So Paul brilliantly asks and answers that very question within his statement. It's not because they hadn't heard of the promise. They did every week what Preston did for us this morning. They heard the Shema. Then they heard the readings from the Torah. Then they heard the readings from the law. They've heard of the promises, but they didn't understand. They couldn't put the pieces together. So here's the irony. They've read those very same prophecies in the synagogues week after week after week every Sabbath. It tells me that you can go to church and totally tune God out. You can hear God's Word taught and totally blank. Man, I'm tired. It's been a long week. His voice is mellow, except when he shouts. (laughs) It puts me to sleep. That's happening in the first century. People are tuning it out. They have not understood. They, They haven't put the pieces together. So Paul's coming to his summary now. And he's highly compressing it. Go with me to verse 28. And though they found no ground for putting him to death, they asked Pilate that he be executed. Verse 29, when they had carried out all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. You notice that I put an asterisk up there. It's not in your Bible. You're not necessarily going to find an asterisk there. But I want verse 29, especially the part about him being laid in a tomb, to really dwell with you this morning. Because we really need to bear down in that part that he's taken from the cross and laid in a tomb. The fact that the Old Testament speaks of Jesus being on a cross and being removed from the cross and his body laid in the tomb is absolutely amazing. David wrote of it in Psalms 22. David lived 1,036 years before Jesus was born. 600 years before crucifixion was even invented. Yet Psalms 22 describes it in great detail. How do you explain that? God revealing to David what was going to happen. In the book of Deuteronomy and also in the book of Numbers, it says that when that one is killed, he will be buried with a rich man. 400 years before Jesus is born, we're told that he'll be buried in a tomb. Why is that remarkable? Because Rome always took criminals off the cross and threw them in a ditch. They threw them with the garbage because they couldn't afford a grave. They couldn't afford a tomb. Yet Jesus is laid in a tomb. The very fact that the Old Testament predicts those things is absolutely amazing. So we need to bear down on verse 29 because it says they took him down from a cross and they laid him in a tomb. The removal of the body... And the placement in the tomb needs to be underlined because the reality of that means he was dead. 
the death of the Messiah. And what good is a dead Messiah? If all of history has been pointing to this as culmination, saying there's one coming, a deliverer is coming, but that one is killed, what good is a dead Messiah? Verse 29 says he's dead and buried. So Paul faces it head on. He says, yep, it's true. The enemies executed him. The human verdict came in. It happened. It is what it is. Jesus was buried. And from a human viewpoint, it's absolute failure. Everything was lost. But for my two favorite words in all the Bible. Verse 30. But God. But God. I told you two weeks ago it's my favorite phrase. I'm going to keep hammering it. But God did what, church? But God raised him from the dead. See, our God intervenes. He didn't see decay. He didn't stay in the grave. Do you believe that today? Do you personally believe that? Because God's word and God cannot lie, he says, if you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's as simple as that. That's his promise. The forgiveness of your sins is the bonus. If you believe that Jesus is the Christ and that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So what good is a dead Messiah? No good. That's why this Messiah couldn't stay dead. It's the culmination of all truth, of all the evidence that Jesus is the Messiah. That verse right there, that truth is the greatest one. Paul, as an old man, wrote Romans. The Romans chapter 1 says this, Jesus was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. Absolutely. He told everybody, every place he went, it was his message. Let's move forward. He says, you need proof? Verse 31, and for many days he appeared to those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, the very ones who are now his witnesses to the people. He's talking about the 12, the apostles, those who hung out with Jesus in Galilee, made their way to Jerusalem. They're still telling everybody about what they saw. Paul goes one step further. He says, you want more evidence for the resurrection? 1 Corinthians 15, he says 500 people saw him after he was raised from the dead. And then Paul goes on to say in verse 16, I saw him myself. You want proof? I saw him. 500 people saw him. Let's move forward with the story. Verse 32, and we preach to you the good news. Here's the word again of what church? Of the promise. We preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers that God has fulfilled this promise to our children and that he raised up Jesus. God made a promise. God cannot lie. Jesus is raised from the dead. Promise fulfilled. So he begins to end it this way. Verse 33, part B. As it is also written in the second psalm, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. As for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no longer to return to decay, he spoke in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Now, just assuming that you don't know what that is, I'm going to help you with that. I assume most of us didn't grow up in a synagogue. We don't know what in the world he's talking about when he says the holy and sure blessings of David. I told you earlier that God made a promise to David while David was still alive. A promise that he made to him that he made for everyone else. And that promise is found in 2 Samuel chapter 7. So David's still alive. Look with me at this passage on the screen and you'll see what the promise is. When your days are complete, meaning David, when you die, this is God speaking, 
When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. A dead Messiah can't do that. A dead Messiah doesn't live forever. That verse is God's promise, and God cannot lie. God made a promise that there will be one who will live forever. His kingdom will never end. So Paul doesn't stop there. He goes forward. Verse 35, Therefore, he also says in another psalm, You will not allow your Holy One to undergo decay. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid among his fathers and underwent decay. But he whom God raised did not undergo decay. That is a great promise. Because if Jesus didn't undergo decay, you and I don't have to undergo decay. The bodies may die, but we go to live with him forever because Jesus defeated death. So God literally... Paul is saying he can't be talking about David because David went in the grave. It means David is the one who's dead, but God must be speaking of someone else. Someone over whom death has no power. Who could that be? David's body is in the ground. The one whom God raised is the one who reigns forever. I want you to notice this. The promises that you've been hearing All of those commitments made by God required that Jesus be raised from the dead because God can't lie. Right, church? I know you're getting tired of hearing that, but just bear with me on that. God can't lie. And he made a promise. And he keeps his promise. A dead Messiah fulfills nothing. So here's what Paul has done. He's brought it all the way back, 360 degrees. He started with talking about the promises of God how He made the people great, how He led them out, how He raised them up. He's finishing by saying, in the resurrection of Jesus, the promises of God are fulfilled. So watch the great promise made to you now. It says this in verse 38, Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through Him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Is that not amazing? That's another great verse. Throughout this entire talk, Paul has been emphasizing the grace of God, the mercy of God, how he delivered. Now he brings out the greatest act of God's mercy, forgiveness of sin. See, the Jews sitting there that morning are aware of what you're aware of. They're aware of sin in their life. They're aware that they carry it with them every place they go. You don't need people to tell you about the sin in your life. You're fully aware of it. King Solomon, the wisest man to have ever lived, said this all the way back in the Old Testament. There is no man who does not sin. It comes from 1 Kings 8.46. So let's come back to our big questions. Number one, why am I here? Number two, where is this all headed? Am I just part of a series of sunrises and sunsets? Number three, the biggest, most critical issue because of that verse, what do we do about sin? Now, here's the most common answer I hear. Maybe you've heard this one. If I do enough good things, maybe God will let me in one day. You ever heard that? Maybe some of you have said that before you understood. If I do enough good things, maybe God will wink at my past 
and the scales will tip in my favor. God does not wink at sin. Regardless of what some older relative might have told you in the past, there is no such thing as a white lie. It's all sin. God says we wear it. It's on us because of the fall of man. So the next thought is this. Okay, if it's not enough good things, maybe if my life really conforms to the law, maybe if I keep the Big Ten, and I'm not talking about your favorite university, okay? Big Ten, thou shall keep no other gods before me, thou shall not commit murder. You know them. They're, they're engraved in the Supreme Court front door for now. They're there. And people know. They've heard of the Ten Commandments. Maybe if I keep them. No, that's not going to do it either. Hear this. Human effort is absolutely powerless to contain your predisposition to sin. Human effort is powerless to contain our predisposition to sin. Every one of us know that. Trying to be good enough is a crushing burden. Nobody can bear it. Jesus said it himself in Matthew and in Luke. He said that these weights that the Pharisees and the Sadducees put on people, beyond their ability to contain, the law cannot be lived up to. That's why God gave us the law, to show us what it requires to stand before him. No one can keep it. It's impossible. It's a crushing weight. So this morning, if you're working to earn your salvation, Acts chapter 13 is the most liberating truth imaginable that God says, I will forgive your sins, and it's proclaimed to everyone. So Paul steps it up a notch. He gives us another piece of information when he says this in verse 39, part A, and through him, meaning through Jesus, everyone who believes is freed. I don't want to finish the verse yet. Everyone who believes is freed. Now that's a really important phrase. Forgiveness of sins is one thing, but freed from something is another thing. Forgiveness applies to all things. I don't know if you knew that. Your past, your present, even your future. The things that you find yourself struggling with today that you might fail with in the week ahead of you. God says, I forgive it all. Because if he didn't do that, it would be incomplete, right? God says it's all forgiven, past, present, future. It would not be the finished work of Jesus Christ. All, past, present, future. And you look like you don't believe me, so let me remind you, because a lot of Christians struggle with that thought. Look with me up on the screen. Colossians 2.13 says this, He made you alive together with him, having forgiven us. Let's finish it together, church. Having forgiven us all our transgressions. Doesn't say some, does it? Doesn't say all of them, but the really, really bad ones. If you believe, He has forgiven us all our transgressions. We have a struggle with that because we don't see ourselves as holy. But God says, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, I put His righteousness on you. I see you through Him. So this is a complete forgiveness. So when Paul finishes verse 39 by saying, you are freed If I'm a Jew sitting there that morning in the synagogue and I've been making sacrifices all my life, I'd be thinking, freed? Freed from what? I want the rest of this information. Freed from the works of righteousness you've been trying to do. That's how he finishes it out, verse 39. Freed from all things from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. Meaning they've been working really, really hard to impress God. Trying to earn favor with God. You, this morning... 
cannot do enough good things to stand before a holy God. I can't either. We can't do enough good things to stand before a holy God and have him say, yeah, you're okay, come on in. Thanks for helping that widow across the street. Good job. God says it's not about what you can do. It's about what I did. It's the work of Jesus Christ, not my works of righteousness. Depending on how you grew up, what faith background, maybe no faith background, this may be the first time you've ever heard that. It is not about what you can do. It's about what He did for you. That's the truth of God's Word. Paul knew this. Of all people, Pharisee of Pharisees, he knew keeping the law frees no one from sin. So the truth that you've heard this morning, this good news demands something from you. It demands that you make a choice this morning about Jesus. Perhaps you've never done that. Perhaps you've never made a decision about who Jesus is. So Paul closes with a really strong warning against rejecting what God has offered. I'm not even going to go into verses 40, 41, and 42. He begins leaning back into the Old Testament again. But he says this literally, Do not reject what God has offered to you so freely. The choice that Paul left his audience with is the choice that I'm leaving you with this morning. If you accept the salvation that's being offered to you, Jesus guarantees you a couple things. He guarantees you forgiveness of your sins, past, present, and future. That slate is wiped clean, and he promises you eternal life with God the Father. And God cannot lie, right, church? Okay, just thanks for bearing with me on that. God cannot lie. He will not lie to you. If you reject what he's offered to you, it brings judgment and eternal separation from God. Those are his words also. So hear this. God's love for you does not cancel out sin. God's love for you sent his son to pay the price for your sin. Many people think God's like 80% love, 20% justice. I'm going with the love side. God is 100% love and 100% justice and 100% mercy and 100% righteousness. He's omni-everything. God is 100% love, but he's 100% justice. And his love doesn't cancel out his sense of justice. His son paid the price so that you could have justice. His justice. His righteousness put on you. That's why the writer of Hebrews chapter 2, verse 3 said, how are you going to escape if you neglect this? Hebrews 2, 3, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? You can't turn your back on it. God's made it so easy for you. So here's your application this morning. Paul gave them good news. I'm going to do the same for you today, and I'm going to give you an opportunity to receive Jesus if you've never done that in your life. Through faith in Jesus Christ this morning, you can have two things. You can have forgiveness of your sins, and you can have justification before God. And justification is just a big word that literally means this. God takes the righteousness of Jesus, and he puts it on you. He wipes your debt completely clean. I'm going to invite you, if you've never done that before this morning, to raise your hand in just a few minutes if you would like to receive that, if you would like to have that for yourself. Our God not only forgives our sins, 
but he puts the righteousness of Jesus on us so that you and I can say this morning, I am redeemed. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, would you like to say that right now? I'm thinking you might. Let's say it on three. One, two, three. I am redeemed. If you're not a believer, you can't say that. You can't say that you're redeemed because it's not true yet. So here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I'm going to ask everybody in the auditorium to close your eyes and put your heads down. Just bow your heads. We did this in the previous services. I'm going to do it right now. Those who are believers in Jesus, I want you to be praying for those in the auditorium that may not be there yet. Maybe haven't accepted the fact that Jesus has forgiven them of their sins and if they just ask for it. So I'm going to ask you if you would like to receive Jesus this morning to raise your hand and be forgiven of your sins. God has offered that to you freely. I see hands all over the auditorium, just like in the previous services. And God sees you. I promise you. I'm going to pray for you right now. I'm going to pray for you, and this whole auditorium is going to pray along with me silently. You can put your hands down, and let's pray. Father, you know, and you see, and you intimately recognize those individuals who have just raised their hands. They want your forgiveness of sin, and they want eternal life with you. Father, your word promises us that you know them by name. It's an amazing thought. Seven billion people on this planet, and you know us. You know the hairs on our head. Father, for these individuals who have raised their hands, you know their past, and you know their present, and you know their future. And they just declared that they want a relationship with you through Jesus. I pray, Father, that you would surround that one who has willingly recognized that they need a Savior. And in the moment that they did that, you promised to forgive them. So, Father, I ask that you would take them to the next level. Now that they belong to you, I ask that you would encourage them through the power of your Holy Spirit to begin to grow in their walk with you in a way that they have never done before. That the life of Jesus Christ within them will be evident. That they'll want to put behind them the longings of the past and the sinful activities that they might be involved in even now. God, I pray for these individuals that they would walk strongly in the power of the Holy Spirit who now resides within them. For every one of us, Father, those of us who identify ourselves as followers of Jesus Christ, I pray that you would take the truth of what we've just heard this morning in the most plain way that Paul could present it. We thank you, first of all, for writing it down in your word. But God, I ask that you would translate this to boldness, that we would be a courageous people to share this truth with our family and our friends, our coworkers who don't know you yet and who need to meet Jesus. Father, I ask that you would translate this boldness out of the power of your Holy Spirit. It's in Jesus' mighty name that we pray. And all God's people said, amen.